on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. For me, it's that if you got in a van and you played at some shitty clubs that, that were, were, were punk clubs, right? And counting their pennies to get, you know, a bean burrito at Taco Bell each, uh, they're a punk band. So, and, and, they're, and they're welcome in the museum. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction, knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff. And this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 155 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get going for this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode of the show, Jeff Schumacher from the Mob Museum. Jeff was kind enough to come on the podcast again and have an in-depth chat about one of the lesser known Vegas mob stories, that of Benny Binion. We talked about Binion's beginnings in organized crime, his move to Las Vegas, the early days of the Horseshoe Casino, and how the Binion legacy lives on today. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 154, The Cowboy, The Life and Times of the Legendary Benny Binion. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. When you think music and Las Vegas, there's likely a few names that spring to mind instantly, like Elvis Presley, the Rat Pack, Liberace, and Wayne Newton. Or if you want to get more modern, think Celine Dion, Cher, Lady Gaga, and Bruno Mars. But I'm willing to bet punk rock isn't even on your radar. However, a new attraction in the city, sandwiched between the burgeoning arts district and the Las Vegas Strip, is hoping to change that perception. The newly opened Punk Rock Museum houses the world's largest collection of punk rock artifacts and memorabilia, including posters, photos, clothing, instruments, and artwork, all donated by the people who lived it. Joining me on this episode of the podcast is Vinny Fiorello, who you may know as the longtime drummer and lyricist from the ska punk band Less Than Jake. Vinny is also the chief marketing officer and one of the co-founders of the Punk Rock Museum. Vinny and I talked about the inspiration behind the formation of the Punk Rock Museum, the legendary punk artists who came together to create the museum, some of the incredible experiences available, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Vinny Fiorello from the Punk Rock Museum. We'll start with Ground Zero, and that was a conversation between Fat Mike from No Effects and Lisa Brownlee, who uh, I had known for an incredibly long time as a tour manager for Warp Tour, right? Uh, and uh, they they kind of kicked the idea around of making a uh, Las Vegas punk shop, uh, something that sold like kind of punk gear, records, and and stuff. Not a record store, but just like a punk shop. Uh, he they had talked a little bit. Mike had called me, and he knows that uh, I'm a merch hound. A previous band, less than Jake. Like we've done a lot of interesting vinyl records and a lot of interesting merch and toys and everything like that. 
knows I'm like a merch hound. And he was like, Hey, uh, we have this idea. Do you want to like sort of come in on this, you know, and you can do merch, you can figure it out. I was like, dude, absolutely. You know, uh, he's like, it's just an idea now, you know, but, but I was like, okay, call me when you know more. Uh, a couple of days later, I get a phone call. Hey, it's Mike again. I go, Hey, what's up? You know, he goes, remember I talked to you about like the Vegas punk shop. I go, yeah. He goes, well, forget about that. Uh, we're going to do the punk rock museum and uh, it would still going to have a shop and uh, you, you know, but we're going to add artifacts and we're going to do whatever. And I was like, dude, that sounds great. It's like, do, do you want to like sort of get it together with us and do, yeah, obviously, you know, so there, there was five of us, right. That, that uh, after sort of I talked and we all talked together, it's all of a sudden the, the, you know, uh, the name, the, the incorporation, the ideas, and it started just to multiply and kind of go out into uh, the ether from there, man. And that was a, a two and a half year from literally uh, nothing uh, except, we, I think we want to do this to a, a 12,000 square foot building and the beats sandwich between uh, the arts district in Las Vegas and uh, the neon gateway. So uh, it's cool, man. And it's, oh, it's open, it's functioning uh, and walking through it. You're, you're just like, uh, I, I, even though I I've been there, you know, uh, since the beginning, I'm still flabbergasted by how big it is and what a a gigantic undertaking it is. Right, so it's a two and a half floors has a bar. It now has a tattoo shop that's open in it. It has a jam room where you can pick up instruments from like Joan Jett and Tim Armstrong and Fat Mike and Fletcher from Pennywise. Be able to plug them into amp and play through. Right and Dude, that 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 to me is a true sort of like hands-on experience. Like it's that it's a museum, but on like uh, complete punk uh, craziness. It's awesome. Vegas is an interesting choice for the location for this. I mean, it's a city that's kind of more associated with the Rat Pack and and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. and Elvis Presley and Wayne Newton. Did Vegas have a, a big punk scene or does it still have a big punk scene? It, it had a big punk scene. Uh, and then uh, it had a actually famous, uh, a famous club called the Hunt Ridge Theater, right? That, that shut down for a while. That's just planning a renovation. But it, it had a, a big punk scene and then it kind of waned uh, in popularity uh, for a few decades. But the reason why... Las Vegas was picked for location. It wasn't the fact that, Hey, here's this like, you know, historical punk scene. Right. And that we have to put it there because of that. Uh, but it was that, Hey, it's a hub for tourism. It's a, and a, a, by comparison of LA, New York, London, real estate is cheap. Right. And, and the fact that they have the, uh, the infrastructure can handle people going there. There's tons of hotels to be able to get from one point of Vegas to the other point. It's simple and it's easy, right? And it's it's designed, Vegas is designed for people to go there and have a good time, to go there, to be on vacation, to see what they haven't seen. And the, the Punk Rock Museum slides 
nicely and neatly right into that, you know, and uh, th- that's cool by me, right? Like, you know, there's some people like should have been in LA or New York or, you know, but that's cool. We already know that they have historical, you know, historical punk scenes. It's ground zero for punk rock music. We get that. And it's undisputed. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, putting a punk rock museum in New York city, it would have been a fraction of the size. We just couldn't afford to do it otherwise. Right. Yeah. LA. Uh, it's so massive and it is equally expensive. Well, what about hotels and what about getting from the hotel to the museum, it, it starts to get like kind of uh, almost like obvious for it to be in Las Vegas, right? And after talking about it, you go, "Oh, this is this is why this is this is perfect." And uh, while there's there's some staunch doesn't belong there, there's a whole lot of other people going. I, I I've gone to Vegas every year for the last twenty years. This is perfect. It fits right in. I mean, Vegas has a lot of niche museums anyways, between the Mob Museum, Atomic Testing Museum, uh, the um, the Burlesque Museum, the Pinball Hall of Fame Museum. It, it's kind of cool to have something new and different just slide right into that scene. I, I, I think so. And again, it, it, the infrastructure is there and built, right? That there's niche museums that exist that succeed because it's in Las Vegas. So if you already know something succeeds in the genre and in that like sort of, uh, you know, definition of what you are, then it makes sense to be there, man. You mentioned some of the other folks that are involved in the museum and in the creation. I mean, you've got a, a, a massive amount of musical history of which you are also a part of too. I mean, you've got a, a huge career. Let's, let's talk about you and your, your past. I mean, you're, you're no slouch when it comes to the punk scene, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. I mean, for me, uh, one of the founders of Less Than Jake, uh, and I left uh, twenty, uh, just about 28 years in. I stepped away from touring, but was a principal lyricist for that and sort of creative sort of uh, director, so to speak, and a lot of the merch, as I, I said before, we were talking about it. Uh, so Less Than Jake spent uh, almost three decades there. Started Fueled by Ramen Records, which, you know, signed everyone from Jimmy World, Panko Disco, Fall Out Boy, uh, Jim Plus Heroes, go down that that sort of line to it. Uh, I was acquired by uh, uh, Warner Music Group in 2008. Uh, I mean, I, I could go on. I, I've done comic books. I've done children's books. I've done toys. I've had toy lines. I've worked with Funko. Uh, I've done consultancies for Warner Brothers. I mean, that that's an, I'm not trying to be, uh, <clears throat> make a humble brag out of it, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've, I've spent my time in, in the trenches of the music industry and the creative industry. Hey man, there, there is nothing wrong with, uh, with a little humble brag, my friend. It's, uh, it's all good by me. Um, you mentioned some of the folks that you've teamed up with uh, for the museum a little bit earlier, but uh, again, can you just recap some of the the people that are involved with this other other than yourself? Uh, Fat Mike for No Effects. You have Fletcher uh, from Pennywise. Uh, Tony Hawk is an investor. Uh, Brett Gerwitz from uh, Epitaph Records and from Bad Religion is an investor. Uh, I mean, go down the line. Shepard Ferry uh, from Obey, like uh, street artist and modern artist. He is an investor as well. 
there's uh, all in all, uh, we have a punk collective, which is a core of us that make uh, decisions creatively and, and inside that, that sphere. And then as far as contributors and investors go, there's uh, about 281 people that, that are involved. Uh, everyone from, you know, uh, uh, late seventies, early eighties, punk bands, all the way up to modern punk bands and record executives and modern artists and go down the list. It, it's, it's a lot of heavy hitters and it's a lot of, uh, just awesome people, man, uh, that have a collective, you know, a, a lot of years in a collective, uh, musical, uh, realm. You mentioned some of the contributors and the people that are involved. Let's talk about the eras that the the museum focuses on. Does it focus kind of everywhere? Is it more modern or classic, or is it just a little bit of everything? How we set up the museum is first floor. It starts with a, a little bit of an introduction and a little bit of proto-punk, right? And then goes right into the 70s in New York City, and then goes into the 70s in London, 80s California, 80s New York, 80s Midwest. And then it goes into the, you know, 90s of Fat Records and Epitaphs and when punk broke and it goes into international punk bands, Canadian punk bands, goes into, uh, you know, a, a heavy like sort of we're assembling it now, but crossover corner. And then upstairs is uh, the 2000s. So that's super modern Warped Tour era bands. Right. And uh, it, the, the funny thing is you can kind of tell right that hey here's you know punk punk broke in the 90s but it's been such a heavy influence on sort of pop culture that punks uh you know sort of micro genres uh, now are are you know you couldn't even count them you know here's you know stuff that's that's super poppy and very aligned with radio right but then you have that th this a little bit left, that's more metal and then hardcore. And then if you start to look upstairs and really kind of dig into what is modern punk, modern punk is everything because it's, you know, uh, felt the reverberation from when it broke in the nineties. Right. And now you can, that, that influence and uh, on art and on music and, you know, everything, uh, graphic design and fashion, like it, it, you could, as you start to dig it out, you could start to pick up on those influences and uh, you could tell upstairs, you know, it's a super bright and it's, you know, everyone, if you're looking on the wall, uh, there's my chemical romance and there's fallout boy over there and there's, you know, Avenged sevenfold and, you know, everything from even folk, punk, you know, there's some like folk punk that's like up there too, and you start to dig through it all and you know that it's uh, not just, hey, punk was this in the 80s, right? You understood if you said punk rock, it was very narrow, uh, that definition, to now, hey, this, this, it's punk. It, it's an extremely wide swath of, of genres that make up for that scene. It's interesting that you say that because in my head, I'm thinking about the years I spent in work. I worked top 40 radio from like 1998 to about 2002. And so I never thought of bands like Jimmy E world, for example, as a punk band, because I was playing it right next to songs by Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. And it just, it slid right in there. And I never really thought of them as a, a punk band per se. 
You know, uh, for me, it's that if you got in a van and you played at some shitty clubs uh, that were, were, were punk clubs, right? Uh, and you, you were riding that crest of a wave in a scene inside the punk scene, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a punker, man. Like, and you could, you could try to like, you know, dissect it all you want and go, oh, they're not a punk band. Maybe they're on a, not a punk band now, but when they started and they were slugging it out, you know, and counting their pennies to get, you know, a bean burrito at Taco Bell each, right? Uh, they're a punk band. So, and, and, they're, and they're welcome in the museum. As I say, I just never thought of those bands as punk bands. And I think a lot of that was just simply because I was playing them inside that 10 in a row music mix alongside Eiffel 65. Um, <laughs> but and, but and even if you bring it back, right? And, and let's start talking about it. It's that uh, B-52s started as punk band, right? Uh, Pretenders, Blondie. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Blondie is, is ground zero New York City uh, for punk, the punk scene, right? Uh, Debbie Harry and Blondie, uh, generally speaking, became superstars and superseded a definition of what punk is or was or whatever, right? And the same thing, man, like modern music, well, My Chemical Romance, right? Started on punk scene, you know, kind of surfed that wave of modern emo, Right into top 40 radio number one records and can play the right next to uh, the Britney Spears of this world and, and be seamless uh, on the radio because they, they've, they've uh, became fabrics of sort of uh, what modern radio was and modern music was. Right. And I, I, there's a lot of warp tour in there, but the reason why I'm bringing that up is that, you know, uh, there was always a lot of people going, I hate what Warp Tour became. It used to be a punk tour and now it's not, right? And what I had always said was that it was always a pop culture tour and that just because pop culture changed and you didn't change with that pop culture, it didn't make it a, a less of a punk tour than it was when it was Green Day and uh, a Weezer or Blink or Less Than Jake or whoever else, you know, uh, it's still the same tour. Uh, just the tastes of change, pop culture has changed. And I think it's the same thing, man. It's that when you're talking about, if you look back over your shoulder and you start to look at the damned and you start to look at, uh, you know, like say again, Blondie or the Ramones or things like that, it, they became something else than just someone's best kept secret. Right. Uh, it superseded that that initial uh, starting point and took on a life of its own. So it's cool to be able to see that, you know, it's like some 41 and simple plan, right? You go uh, punk bands, mm-hmm. undis- undisputed punk bands, but they became part of the fabric of an MTV and popular culture. And that doesn't make them less of a punk band if you're looking backwards, right? So I don't know. <laughs> I, I could I could I could wax philosophical about it all day long if we wanted to, but uh, the the point being is that when we set out for uh, the Punk Rock Museum, we wanted it, it to be inclusive, right? We wanted it just not to show, hey, here's a bunch of like sort of suburban white kids starting, right? Because it was much more than that, and it's always been much more than that. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's the the inclusiveness of of everybody involved 
all the genres that make up the whole, right? And I want, always, I wanted someone to come to the museum, no matter who it was, be able to find someone on the wall of the museum and go, I, I can relate, right? And, and that's the important thing, man. It's not so like, uh, you know, we're not blinded by being passionate about punk rock that we didn't want to represent everybody, mm-hmm. right? That, that's super important. Just because I come from a ska punk background and a pop punk background and a modern punk background, uh, that doesn't mean that I didn't want it to think it was important to be able to show, you know, uh, uh, X-ray specs, right? Or, or uh, make sure that the damned is there or make sure that, uh, you know, the uh, 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 red ants from Epitaph are on the wall. Like those things have to be represented just because they were part of the fabric at the time, right? So, uh, and that goes to show that it, it really is important on the collective aspects to make sure that we're covering as much ground and as much sort of, uh, little nooks and crannies that might be forgotten due to personal preference, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to work a, as a group in these sort of things. You know, we were meeting once a week to talk about artifacts. We would have homework. Hey, have, did anyone talk to, you know, so-and-so? No, but I know someone who knows somebody who let me uh, shoot some emails and make some calls about it, right? So uh, it, 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 it definitely took a village to be able to fill that place, you know, but Mike has said it before and I'll repeat it here. We're going to need a bigger boat, man. There, there it's packed and uh, it's only getting more now that it's open. People are like, Oh shit, this is, this is a real thing. I thought when I got the email, uh, you know, uh, a year ago or two years ago that it was just some bullshit. And uh, when it's open now, they're like, Oh, it's, it's real. So I'll, I'll send you some stuff now, you know? So there, there's a constant stream that, that that's coming, you know, I love that you, you mentioned the inclusivity and, and that's kind of one of the things that's really neat about what you said, the, the eras that you're covering and everything. I mean, this is a place that the 60 year old punk fan can walk in and see stuff or, or see things from the clash and Blondie and, and, and the, the early days. And the 20 year old can come in and see stuff from panic at the disco and fallout boy and it's kind of neat that the two can kind of intersect and learn something from each other, because I'm sure there's 60 year olds that would love listening to newer stuff and 20 year olds that would love listening to old stuff. When I worked in classic rock radio, one of our biggest audiences was 18 to 25 year olds. They dug the classic rock stuff. I, I, absolutely, man. I mean, I, I always go back to that. If you took a band like surfboard, right? Let's just say surfboard. And you took them back to uh, the early eighties and just dropped them off and said, go for it. Like people, people would dig that man. Like, and it, they would have, uh, they would slide right into that scene and it'd be awesome. And I never got the fact that there's so many people who are closed off. This is my scene. It's the late seventies to the early eighties and close themselves off from new bands and, and, you know, sort of that, a new wave of, of, of music that comes. Uh, they're missing out on a massive amount of really good bands and really good music. Right. So I think that, you know, you know, if, if there's anything, any hopes would love that a dad or a mom would bring their son or daughter and the dad's like, Hey, look, like here's, 
Pennywise, you know, and I want to go see them play. And there's Green Day. I saw them play. And there's Operation Ivy. Like, you know, Green Day plays that song and check it out. And then they walk upstairs and their kids are like, but check it out. There's the Bronx and there's, uh, you know, uh, Mast Intruder and there's uh, Panic at the Disco or Fall Out Boy or My Chemical Romance or whoever, the main, what, whatever, what have you, right? I'm just naming bands now. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 my hope is that there's a, an equal sort of uh, I'll show you yours and you show me you know, I'll show you mine type thing. Right. And uh, not in a weird way at all, but <laughs> in, in, in the way that, uh, you know, John, you know, generations seem to only pay attention to things generationally. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that there's some crossover and some knowledge and education and learning from each other, being inspired by other decades of music and not just being locked into one. After the break, we hear all about the very unique tour guides working at the museum, and Vinny tells us about one of his favorite artifacts on display. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. Do you have any personal favorites for items that are in the museum? Any Anything that you just, when you walk into the museum, you're just like, I can't fucking believe we have this. It's uh, two, two things. It's the... Uh, one of Billy Joe's blue guitars, right? And that's that's the guitars, man. That's from starting to to being massive, right? Massive band. Th- those are the guitars, right? Mm-hmm. So being able to like look at that, it just takes me back in one second to seeing and and, and falling in love with Green Day on Thirty Nine Smooth, and then Kerplunk, and then th- then Dookie came out, and they became not my band, but everybody's band. Right. And to be able to see that guitar and go bring myself like a time machine automatically back and and see him at the Cuban club, you know, and blue chair out in Tampa. Oh, I remember that, you know, and then same thing. It's another guitar. It's it's Tim Armstrong's guitar from Operation Ivy. Operation Ivy is one of those bands that that heavily led less than Jake into the, the waters that that we went in. Right. And to be able to see that and go, yeah, there, there's there's a, a ground zero of my musical journey is right there. Mm-hmm. It's awesome, man. It, it, tr- it truly is uh, an amazing uh, thing to be able to to not only look at, uh, but to also be a part of. There's a, a lot of music museums around the world and, and across the U.S. I mean, you've got, you know, the what used to be Experience Music Project EMP in Seattle, now Museum of Pop Culture and Rock Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. It, what what sets the punk rock museum apart from those those places and those types of museums? You know what? I, I really think that, you know, it, it's the, the experiential that we're going for, right? It's the bar that's there. It, it's the tattoo shop there that's there. It's the jam room that you can go in and touch and play. And, and I really think that sets uh, the bar in a different in a different way than some of the other things, right? Some of the other music museums. Mopop's a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's a lot of the experiential things that's there. But then if you go into the other direction of some other music museums, everything's behind glass. You can't touch anything. You can't really do anything besides look at it, right? So I think that for the museum 
being able to show up and uh, kind of spend the day, man. You can hang out, have a drink, walk through the museum, have another drink, maybe slide upstairs, play your favorite person's guitar, uh, grab a tattoo. We have a chapel where you could get married. We also at the same chapel, you could get awake if you want to uh, remember some fallen friends. But uh, we're, we're really trying to put it and push it out that you you can have the full experience there in the punk rock museum. So uh, there, there's more as far as program. We're just getting into programming now. Mm-hmm. So soon it'll be book signings, book readings. It'll be, you know, acoustic shows and it'll start to form this sort of epicenter uh, of punk music and punk culture. Something else you guys do that I think is amazing that kind of sets you guys apart is you've got some real big names giving guided tours of the museum, which I think is awesome. I mean, you're not walking into the rock hall of fame and Eric Clapton isn't coming in and giving you a tour. Um, You know, (laughs) not, not to cut you off. I think the guided tours, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a very exciting, like sort of feature to have. Right. Because I think to myself and go, I I would love it if, you know, Shepard Ferry obey, right. Uh, uh, Was I could get a guided tour through, you know, sort of modern art or street art with him and hear his stories about this is, you know, why is this thing important to me and how it influenced me and, the scene that he like sort of ran with. Those are the things that, you know, if you go, uh, whoever, you know, is coming in at CJ Ramon, right. To be able to hear his story, to be able to hear the stories about the Ramones and about the influence and about the sphere of people that were in his orbit and the bands that they toured with. You're hearing uh, history, but you're hearing it directly from the person who lived it not from a, a third party, not from a filter, you know, uh, through from somebody, an author or whoever. And that, that truly is an important part of, of what we're doing. Right. And uh, I, I hope that as time goes on, we can sort of continually sort of uh, level up on, on people that are coming to the museum. Right. And, and becoming tour guides just because I think that those stories have to be told and those stories, you know, should be, uh, you know, recorded somewhere as they do it for sure. It's so cool. Um, you mentioned some of the experiences that, that people can have at the, at the museum and talk about weddings and the bar and tattoo parlors. Again, I assume this was something that right from the start was like, yeah, we got to do something different. Let's do weddings. Let's do wakes. Let's have a tattoo parlor. Like you can't go again. You don't go to the rock hall of fame and get a tattoo. Sir, you do not. Right. (laughs) And it's something that, uh, while it did take, you know, a little bit longer to assemble the museum than we anticipated, but that's with any business that you're starting literally from nothing dust and up. Right. Uh, but the, the good thing about those delays and those sort of moments where the project was on hold because we were waiting for X, Y, Z, you know, find a building and, and you know, buy the building, uh, it allowed for other facets of the museum to come about organically, right? Mm-hmm. That it wasn't this rush of, 
we got to do all the stuff when you're talking about the museum. First, it was, we got to do the museum. And then little by little, these moments of, we got to have this, we got to do this, like, surely we should do that. And sometimes, you know, it was, uh, no, we're definitely not doing that. No, the, no, we're definitely not having a bar. No. And then, uh, no, we're going to, we are going to have the bar because everybody else went, Oh yeah. Like we got, we're going to have the bar, you know, even if you felt, uh, you know, as, Oh, why, why would we have a bar at the museum? And then everybody's like having a bar is the best idea. So you're like, all right, I'll vote it. Let's go. You know? Uh, so I, I, I just think that at a certain point, man, that, uh, we're, we're bringing to the table, some very unique and very cool things that you could do, you know, and, uh, to be able to see, to be able to touch, to be able to have that experience. And uh, we, we just have to continually add to that, mm-hmm. right? Keep it fresh. You know, I always say that it, it's a living museum, man. It's that what you see there is not necessarily what's going to be there a year from now, right? It's going to constantly morph and it's going to constantly change. And we're going to bring in artifacts and take out artifacts and we're going to you know, have different programming and we're going to bring in, you know, level up experiences that are there now. And that's the way it should be. It's not, it's not meant to be the static, uh, the static thing, you know, Uh, it always has to live and breathe and continue to grow. Do you think to a certain degree as a bit of an aside did, I, I mean, I'm sure you guys kind of experienced the same delays that a lot of people did with COVID and all of that stuff, not to bring the mood down, but do you think to a certain degree, did that almost kind of help you because you were able to, to develop things more or maybe pull things back that you, you were planning on and then thought on second thought, as you say, like, man, maybe that's not a great idea or, you know, develop this or whatever, those delays, were they helpful? I do think that, you know, there's some delays that happen, whether it's, you know, trying to find a building or buying the building or, or renovating, you know, renovating the building where the, it slows down, right? And you can really like sort of pick through the idea as it slows down. And then by doing that, it really just speeds up the process after the fact, right? So because it's a lot more focused and a lot more uh, refined than it was prior to that slowdown, right? So I do think so. I mean, uh, COVID did, did a lot of, of delays and a lot of, oh, it's, well, it's, you know, just part, part of the world that we were living at that time, right? You know, it's uh, whether it be shortages, whether it be increased pricing, uh, increased uh, sort of uh, time that you would get it, you know, delays and in, in, in things, you just sort of ran with it and, and tried to figure it out, right? And there's a, a point that, you know, if you're waiting around for one thing, it left room to talk about other things and really like sort of grind them down a little bit. Excellent. If people want to learn more about the museum, they want to get tickets, they want to get info. You guys, of course, are online, website, social medias. Uh, ThePunkRockMusic.com and the punk rock museum on instagram and facebook excellent Vinny. thank you so much for taking the time to jump on i really do appreciate this my friend thanks for having me and that wraps up another episode of jeff does vegas 
If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at JeffDoesVegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.